more the joy of the Lord. Thanks, David. Thanks, Ardeth. It's quite a wall we have up here. I feel distant from you. I thought about making jokes about how we built a wall, uh, but I decided not to go political, so I won't make those jokes. <laughs> okay. Right? All right. <laughs> Growing up as a family, we had three big holidays in our family. We had Resurrection Sunday, Easter. We had Thanksgiving. We had Christmas. We did some things on Memorial Day. We tried to go see some reenactments around us. It always rained. Always did. Whenever we went somewhere, it always rained. We did some things on Fourth of July. It always rained, too. I don't know what's going on. But the big three we had was Easter... Thanksgiving and Christmas. Those were the big three. Each one was different. Each one was distinct in our celebration. I've departed from my family by squishing them all together, all the holidays. I celebrate all three every single time, but that's beside the point. Thanksgiving was the holiday where we ate a bunch. I loved Thanksgiving. Loved, like, I still love Thanksgiving. I love all the food of Thanksgiving. I'm not here to talk about food. But for Thanksgiving, it was all about the meal. It was the meal. We opened our table to anyone who wanted to come, and we stuffed our faces, and they stuffed their faces. In college, my folks lived right around the corner from the college. I stayed on campus, but I got to go home on the weekends. It was the best of both worlds. And on Thanksgiving, I would bring all of our college friends home who couldn't go home for Thanksgiving. And they would all gather around the table, and they had the time of their life stuffing their faces. We adopted them for the day. One Thanksgiving, we had 20 people around that dining room table. We had to build extra leaves and modify the table so it could fit, and we built extra like supports for the ends so it wouldn't collapse on itself. It was quite this feet to try to fit all these people. But we loved it. We loved having all those people. So many good memories. Anyone who sat down at our table for Thanksgiving, whether they were family or whether they're friends growing up, had to pay the toll. It wasn't that we asked them for money or that we asked them for food, because that was all taken care of. All they had to come and bring an empty stomach. That's all they had to do. But they had to pay a toll, because after they ate the main course, and however long that took, before we got to the dessert, every single person that sat around the table had to share two things that they were thankful for from the year. And if they didn't share those two things, they couldn't get pumpkin pie or any sort of dessert that was there. They had to share those two. And boy, there were some people that really squirmed in their seat. Sometimes the thankfulness that was shared because they were uncomfortable with it was trite, or funny, that's fine, we accepted it, as long as they were sharing something they were thankful for. Most of the time, though, there was a depth. As we, whether we're family or friends, because we know each other so well, there was a depth, and we opened up about the blessings of God through hardship, through disappointment, through grief. No Thanksgiving went by in my family without tears running down our faces. Part of that's just because who we are, I mean, I cry up here all the time. My sister cries. It's just who we are. But, but there's a depth as we realize God's faithfulness through all things. Those times of thanksgiving, true thanksgiving, are very important. They're necessary. In honor of thanksgiving, I'm going to talk about two things that I'm thankful for the next two weeks. Two things I'm thankful for about the church of Jesus Christ. One thing this week 
one thing next week. In all honesty, the two subjects I'm preaching on this week and next week are subjects that I preached on four years ago, before COVID. But as I was praying about who we are as a church and the things that God is doing and the things we need to grow in, I was like, you know what? Those two things I preached on four years ago need to be revisited again because they were four years ago. They happened before COVID. Several people have died since then. A lot of new people have come and we are a new church. And these are things that we need to keep revisiting over and over and over again. This week, I'm thankful that God designed his church to be a family. Now, when you read this, when you hear it, you might immediately think of your own family or someone else's family. And you think about dysfunction because you've never experienced a good family. And there's a pain that you feel when you think about family because of all the hurts that your dysfunctional family had. Unfortunately, our sin and the sins of those around us do tend to taint the picture that God is trying to paint through his people. But that sin, whether it's our sin or someone else's sin, does not have to define the picture that God is painting. All we have to do is take out a soft cloth and some paint thinner and slowly wipe away the stain that our sin has put on there to see the glorious work of art that God intended his family to be. God designed the church to be a good family. Before we dive into this message, will you pray with me? Father, I thank you that you are the God who loved us so much that you came into our sin, into our mess, into our pain, and you dwelt among us in it. You know who we are intimately, and you are the God who calls us out of it to be with you. Through the precious blood of Jesus Christ, you declare yourself to be our Father. And that is an amazing thing, to have a dad that never leaves us nor forsakes us, but is always there. And having a family that is loving, unconditionally, accepting us who we are and pushing us to be like you. Lord, it is an amazing thing to be part of yours. Lord, I ask that today as we study the family, your family, I pray that I would decrease and that you would increase. And may the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, my rock and my redeemer. Thanks, Father. Amen. Let's talk about the church as a family. First, some theology. A guy by the name of Lee Eklov decided to study this concept of the church as a family. And he wrote this book called Feels Like Home. And his whole thesis, premise of this book, is that when the body of Christ, brothers, those who have claimed to be followers of Jesus Christ, come into the church building, it should feel like their home. Because this is where the family dwells. Great book. In my study of the church as a family, I've drawn a lot of concepts from this book. And if anyone wants to read it, I'll gladly loan it to you, as long as you give it back. Scripture is littered with verses about Christians being a family or part of a house, a household. We have references to brothers and sisters, to God as our father, to Jesus as both our bridegroom and elder brother, to the essential loving unity of God's family, 
to household environment of holiness, spiritual nurture, and safety. We can consider 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 15. Paul's writing to Timothy and says, If I am delayed, you know how people ought to conduct themselves in God's household, which is the church of the living God, the pillar of the foundation of truth. The church is God's household, part of his family. How about Ephesians chapter 2, verse 19? Consequently, you are no longer foreigners and strangers, all those people, the outcasts, but you are fellow citizens with God's people, also members of his household. Hebrews chapter 3, verse 6. Christ is faithful as the, son of God over, as the Son over God's house, and we are his house, if indeed we hold firmly to our confidence and the hope in which we glory. That word house is the word household. There are so many comparisons between the church of Jesus Christ and a family that many people refer to this metaphor of the family as the most significant metaphor, the most significant illustration in the Bible for the church. But when God says we are his family, we are part of his household, it is not just a metaphor, it is not just an illustration. God's household is the very definition of the church. We are not like a household, we are not like a family, we are one. Psalm 68 verses four to six speaks prophetically of a time when God would create a new family. This is the Old Testament, People of Israel looking forward to when the Messiah comes. Psalm 68, verses 4 to 6. Sing to God, sing in praise of his name, extol him who rides on the clouds. Rejoice before him. His name is the Lord. He is a father to the fatherless, a defender of widows, is God in his holy dwelling. God sets the lonely in families. He leads out the prisoners with singing, but the rebellious live in a sun-scorched land. The minute we accept Jesus as our Savior... We were the outcast. We were abandoned. We were apart from God. He takes us, the lonely, and we are brought into a family with God as our father, Jesus as our older brother, and every other believer in Christ as our brothers and sisters. This literally happens. Literally does. But just because it literally does, just because it is true, doesn't mean that we naturally interact this way. In America... We don't naturally understand what this looks like, especially those of us who live in the rugged West, where we pull ourselves up by our own bootstraps. We're independent. We're our own man. We make our own destiny. So I ask you to step back in time with me to see how the early church viewed the fact that we are literally part of God's family, literally brothers and sisters with each other. In the New Testament, Christians are referred to as brothers and sisters 139 times. 139 times, crazy. Every single time this reference is made, every single one of those 139 times, the original readers did a double take because they are not used to this language. It's radical language. During the New Testament, no one called someone a brother and sister who was not a blood relative. They never did it. We do it all the time now. Society takes the biblical imagery and applies it to all areas of life. Military units are called bands of brothers. High school girls will say that this person isn't just their friend, she's her sister, that's what they'll say. Never occurred in the New Testament. The concept of the family at that time was radically different than ours. Joseph Hellerman wrote a book called When the Church Was a Family, and he explored 
the early church culture. In this book, he explains three principles of family during the New Testament times. First, in the New Testament world, the group took priority over the individual. Today, we have the individual, and the group bows to the individual, the desires of that person, the needs of that person, the emotions of that person. You see that in some new families. When the mom and dad bow to their small child and change the whole family structure over to the wants of that kid. It's that society. It just exploded in today. Back then, the individual bowed to the group. The individual was hurt or had emotional pain. They just said, it's okay. The group is more important. I'm going to live for the group, not for myself is what they were like. Number two, in the New Testament world, a person's most important group was his blood family. It wasn't his school. It wasn't his synagogue. It wasn't his country. It was his family was the most important group that he would bow to. Number three, in the New Testament world, the closest family bond was not the bond of marriage. It was the bond of siblings. Brother and sister, so, in this individualistic society, where the individual bowed to the group, the, that group that you were closest bonded to, that you were most loyal to, that you said, I will die to myself for that person, was their brother and sister in their family. Hellerman concludes, I trust that you're beginning to see why we cannot simply import our American idea of what it means to be a brother or sister into our interpretation of the New Testament. He continues, brother meant immeasurably more to the strong group authors than the word means to you and me. It was their most important family relationship. It was the most important cultural relationship. At this point, he says, you are now prepared, perhaps for the first time ever, to properly appreciate what the early Christians meant when they referred to each other as brothers and sisters in Christ. Peter takes this concept in 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 7, and he uses the word Philadelphia, which means brotherly love. Remember, the most important bond in that society, brother and sister. And he says in 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 5 to 7, talking about our relationships with each other as followers of Jesus Christ, he says, for this very reason, make every effort to add to your faith goodness, to goodness knowledge, and to knowledge, self-control, to self-control, perseverance, to perseverance, godliness, and to godliness, mutual affection, and to mutual affection, brotherly love. Philadelphia, that word there. The original readers, when at that time, would have been like, whoa, what in the world is Peter saying? The New Testament is the only place that that word, Philadelphia, brotherly love, is used outside of the context of the home and that relationship between the brothers and sisters in the family. This is the only place in all of the literature we have in Judaism, in Rome, in Greece, where this word is used outside of the home. It's radical teaching. The first century reader would come across it here with a sense of shock that Peter really does mean that Christians, followers of Jesus Christ, should have a quality relationship with other Christians that is demonstrably different and satisfying than their other relationships in this world and demanding high and new loyalty. With all this in mind, consider the radicalness of Jesus in Mark chapter three. Jesus' mother and brother arrives at where Jesus is teaching and standing outside, they sent someone in to call him. 
And the crowd sitting around Jesus said to him, your mother and brothers are looking outside for you. Remember, in this society, that's your most important relationship. And if your brothers or your family come and say, hey, you need to be there, you went. You dropped everything because they were the most important bond you had. And Jesus says, who are my mother and my brothers? Then he looked at those seated in a circle around him, and what did he say? Here are my brother and brothers. Whoever does God's will is my brother and my sister and my mother. Jesus takes the most important group bond at that time and replaces it. When we place our faith in Jesus Christ, God has given us a new family. He's given us a first family, fellow believers, those who do the will of God. Our Christian brothers and sisters are our first family in Christ. And some might bristle at this, saying, wait a minute, no, my first priority is to my family. It's my family, and the church should never get in the way of that because my priority is my family. And I'd like to push back on that a little bit based upon the study that's already been said. Let's talk about some practical theology. As a way of illustration for what I'm going to say next, consider marriage. If we love our spouse more than anything else in the world, we will not love our spouse well because we can't. We are called to love Christ first and our spouse is second. If we love Christ first, we will then be able to love our spouse as well because only Christ gives us the ability to love our spouse well. If we say no, our spouse is more important. And I've talked with some people who said, wait a minute, my spouse doesn't want me to go to church, therefore I'm not going to go to church. I'm going to love my spouse. And the marriages just fell apart because they didn't love Christ first. Christ gives us the ability to love our spouse. Christ first, spouse second. The same is true for the church. If we love our families more than God's family, we will not be able to love our families as we should. It's impossible for us to do that without the help of the family of God. If we love God's family as our first family, we will be able to love our biological families as we should because God's family will push us to love our family. Because there's sometimes we just want to ditch them. And... But God's family says, no, hold on to them. Leah Club says this, I have seen too many Christian families who are not anchored in the relationships of God's first family, the church. Christians are raising children who, like them, see church as an event, not a family, who see being with God's people as an optional weekend activity. They skip church for all manners of activities and do not regularly connect with their family, regularly connect their family with others in the congregation. And I had put that up there, but I forgot I put that up there. There we go. We all know the dangers of parents who spend too little time with their kids. We see that. Those of us who work in the Neely Oakdale school system, who go there, who have worked there, we can call out those kids easily. We see the kids who are abandoned or neglected, and it hurts our heart. But what of the dangers of a Christian kid and their parent who has no sense that our Lord Jesus Christ expects them to be deeply engaged in loving relationships with other believers? When I interact with people in the community and they say they're a follower of Jesus Christ, but they never attend church. I see that same neglect spiritually in their life that I see in the kids of Neely Oakdale school system who are neglected by their family. It's the same. 
David Kinneman conducted a study among millennials and found that millennials who stay in church were twice as likely to have a close personal friendship with an adult inside the church. And this stands true from the inverse angle as well. Seven out of ten millennials who dropped out of church did not have a close friendship with an adult. And nearly nine out of ten never had a mentor at the church. It's important to be in the family. That's why we have the youth mentoring program here at our church. So that our teens will have a close friendship with an adult in our church other than a pastor. They can, other, well, other than their parent is what I meant to say. But other than their pastor is good too. It's, it's important to have that sense of family. That if they have a follower of Jesus Christ, they are part of a first family. And they should be invested in that family. I'm so grateful for the men in my life when I was in elementary and high school who mentored me and led me through some hard times. And I look forward to seeing them again in paradise because they're not here anymore. But they're waiting for me. If you're a teen or if you have a teen and, and they're not part of the youth mentoring program here, let me know. We'll get them paired up so they can experience what it means to be part of God's first family. We need each other. God has ordained us to need each other. The church is this great big family of grandparents, parents, brothers, and sisters, all working with Jesus to make each and all of us more like him. That's a little bit of theology of the church as a family. Let's talk about some practical considerations, though. If this is true, how then should we live? Well, practically, we need to live as a family as we gather inside this building. One of our goals as Calvary Bible Church, when we meet together, is to present each person mature, working together to advance the gospel, to advance the glory of God around this world. And in short, in our lives, that is called discipleship. A disciple is someone who follows a teacher and imitates that teacher. Jesus said the Great Commission, Matthew 28, we know this, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you. That teaching, that discipleship, saying Jesus said this, we must now live it. We train people to follow Christ and to imitate him here. That's our goal. There are many different ways that people grow as a disciple, but there's one main way that God has ordained discipleship to happen, and that is within the church as the church family meets together. That's why we meet together, for discipleship. There's fellowship, there's help, there's encouragement, all that, but all boils around this idea of discipleship. We live, we come for discipleship. We don't come for evangelism. There are many people that say, hey, you know, we need to invite people to church so they can meet Jesus. And that's great. We want people to come to church so they can meet Jesus. But we come here to disciple. We leave to evangelize. We come here to get equipped on what the gospel is and how does it mean to live it so we can go out and spread the gospel and then we bring in the harvest as God works through us to advance the kingdom. We bring him in. My number one priority Sunday mornings is to shepherd the flock of Christ to push you to maturity. Joseph Hellerman says, spiritual formation occurs primarily in the context of community. Long-term interpersonal relationships are the crucible of genuine progress in the Christian life. People who stay in the church also grow. People who leave don't. Jesus makes disciples in the environment of the church home. Ephesians chapter four, 
Paul says. So Christ himself gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors, and teachers to equip his people for the works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up until we all reach unity in the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. If we do not come, we cannot attain. Jesus gave people specific gifts for the purpose of discipleship, presenting each person mature, working together to advance the glory of God. There are many people who try to live the Christian life on their own. And they try to train their children to live the Christian life on their own. And they go through their weeks. Some of them read a verse in the Bible here and a verse in the Bible there. Perhaps they do great and they read whole chapters of the Bible at a time and they've regled their discipleship and that's great. But they only come and meet with their family here once a month, if that, and it doesn't work. Paul clearly teaches us that discipleship is not intended to be a solitary endeavor. It can only happen in the body of Christ, only in the unity of our church home. There are some who would say, you know what? I'm not spending much time in church discipleship opportunities because I'm performing my own discipleship with my kids at home. Now, I have to speak very carefully because families need to have discipleship opportunities at home. If you as a family are not having regular devotions with your family, something's wrong, and you need to be doing that. And if you want to know how to do that, come and see me. I've, got a, I've collected over the years a whole bunch of different tools to help with that so I can equip you to do what God has called you to do. But a parent doesn't have all the giftings to lead their child to complete maturity in Jesus Christ. They do not, because they're just one person. That's why God called us as a church, and he gives us all these different giftings to lead each other to maturity in Jesus Christ. Consider a person's physical diet. If someone eats only fruit, they will not be healthy. If someone eats only protein, they will not be healthy. Each person needs a well-balanced diet to get all the nutrients from all the food groups in order to be healthy. That's why we take vitamins, to help with that. Speaking spiritually, a person, whether they are an adult or a child, needs discipleship from the whole church in order to be healthy. We just went through 1 Corinthians, and we talked about 1 Corinthians 11, 12, 13, 14, and all these different spiritual gifts that God has given this person, that person, that person, that person, that person, so we can come all together and use them to build up the church. Each person is uniquely gifted to help one another towards maturity. No one person can shoulder the task. It can't, whether you're a parent, whether you're a Sunday school. That's why we have a rotation of Sunday school teachers so that we can all use our giftings to mature the people under the care. If one person remains a Sunday school teacher for 30 years, those kids aren't going to be spiritually mature. We must have the whole church working together. That's why I have a rotation of teachers in adult Sunday school, so we can have the whole church working together, and because I need to grow in maturity from your gifts, I haven't arrived. This is how God designed us to grow, the family in our home pushing each other towards Jesus. In America, in rural America, we have grown lax on this. We have decided that regularly attending church means coming once a month. They've done studies now. In the past, 
20 years ago, regularly attending church meant going twice a week. Now regularly attending church means going once a month. That's what our culture says. We have decided that coming once a month's okay and that coming to only the worship service is okay. We don't have to attend any other discipleship opportunity. All we have to do is come, sit, never interact with each other, and then go. And we've made that decision for ourselves and we've made that decision for our kids, saying that's all they need too. Then COVID came and churches put all their services online, which has been great for those who can't come. In the old days, we used to call them the shut-ins and they were just shut in. They couldn't come to church. People went and visited them from time to time. Now they can watch online and they can feel a part, which is good, but it's providing an excuse for so many Christians to become even more lazy and decide, you know what? I don't feel like coming today. I've got this other thing I need to do. My kid's got this thing to do. I'm worried about what's gonna come up and it's gonna be okay because I can watch it online. But it's not the same. Online is not church. Online is not the family coming together. Is a family a family if they never spend time together? Can a family pursue unity and growth if one person refuses to come to the family gatherings? No. Can someone grow spiritually if they refuse to follow the path that God has called them to follow? No. If week after week someone says, I know scripture says do not forsake the assembling together of believers, Week after week, that person wakes up and says, I'm not going to do it. And they keep in that sin. They will not grow spiritually because they're thumbing their noses at God. Discipleship happens when we come together. The church is a family. We should live as a family within our church events, pursuing that discipleship together in our building. The second practical consideration is we need to live as a family outside church events. There's a story that's told about the Apostle John living in Ephesus until he was very old. People loved hearing him because he was the last living apostle of Jesus Christ. He was the last one who had seen Jesus himself. His disciples could barely carry him to church because he couldn't walk, but they would carry him. And he couldn't really speak but everyone would be gathered there in the church building wanting to hear from the last person who had known Jesus. And he usually said nothing except this phrase over and over and over again, little children love one another. The disciples and brothers and believers and attendants would get so annoyed with him because that's all he would say. And they wanted so much more. They wanted depth. Finally, they asked him, teacher, why do you always say this? And he replied, because it is the Lord's commandment, and if it alone is kept, it is sufficient. This is the commandment of Jesus. Love one another. As I have loved you, you must love one another. Lyaklov makes a very interesting observation, something that's quite true, but we forget. We have a hard time remembering. He said, the Bible never tells us to grow our churches bigger. It doesn't. It tells us again, and again, and again, and again, to love one another. Growing is great, but if we don't do what Jesus said, what use is that? The psalmist wrote this in Psalm 133, verse one, how good and pleasant it is when God's people live together in unity. 
The world around us is used to families that are dysfunctional, who are yelling at each other, the parents don't get along, the kids are just ready to leave because everything's... Rah! And if someone, if someone actually has a family that likes each other, the world thinks that they're weird or liars because they've never experienced that. What's sad is when they interact with Christian families and they look at families who love each other and those Christian families think those families are weird or liars because they've become so disillusioned with what God has called them to be. I love hearing from couples who have a vibrant, loving relationship because it's not the norm around here. It isn't. I sit down with premarital young kids who are getting married and I talk to them about what marriage, God designed marriage to be and the loving unity they're supposed to have and they look at me with mouths open because they have never experienced it in their lives. Their parents never taught them what it looks like. Their cultures never taught them what it looks like. And they're like, what? This can't be. But that's what God designed to do. When a church shows love for each other, so much so that they desire to interact with each other outside of the church, people notice and they want to know what's going on. When they say, hey, could you go and do this? Can you come fishing with me? Like, oh, wait a minute, sorry, my, my, my church is having a potluck. I, I really want to go there. Hey, hey, could you do this? Well, well you know what? We're packing shoeboxes, and I really want to spend time with my church. They catch, they're like, what, what, you like them? They don't go to church because they like the people. They go to church because the culture tells them they should, or the family told them they should. But when, when they see that, wait a minute, we love each other, something happens in their mind. We need to intentionally pursue relationship with each other outside of discipleship activities, outside of the morning Sunday morning, because we're a family, and that's what families do. If I haven't stepped on too much ice already, case in point, reclaiming Sundays as a family day instead of a fishing day or a sports day or whatnot. In the morning, we say, wait a minute, we're going to come here to church, and we're going to spend time with our family. We're going to worship together. We're attend discipling together. And then we're going to let that spill out for the rest of the day instead of saying, wait a minute, okay, we're going to go to church and then we got to go to that sports event and then that sports event and then this. We're going to say, wait a minute, no, this is my family day to worship God together as a family. After we come to church, we're going to gather our biological family over a meal because those are so important to come together as a family. But not only our biological family, how about we invite some of our spiritual family over too as a witness of who we are in Christ. For those who live close, consider those who are driving from a long distance. Invite them over so that they don't have to delay their meal. And you can pursue that fellowship with each other. If you're going out to eat in a restaurant, grab someone who at church and say, hey, come with me, so the world will know who we are. Practice love. Practice love. And then take a nap, because we all need to take a nap. Someday. My kids will be the age that I will take a nap again. <laughs> Not only should we reclaim Sundays, but we should reclaim the middle of the week. We all live in a world, in a culture that does not worship God. And that pulls us down. It turns our gaze away from him. Perhaps we're stuck at home and we're with kids all day. And just... I, we see Satan in their life over and over and over and over again. And if we forget who God is and what it means to be loving, and we need to step away from that and get refocused. 
perhaps you live, you work among a bunch of people who are pagans and they keep filling your mind with junk and you feel yourself pulling down spiritually, you need to do something about it. Maybe it means coming to our pie and prayer on Wednesday nights so that you can refocus back on God through his people, our family. And if you say, wait a minute, no, I can't do it. I've got stuff on Wednesday nights, can't do it. That's fine. Call up some brothers and sisters in Christ. Plan a game night. Have them over and do something familial because that's what families do. We get together. We don't just say, okay, we're scheduling this time and we're going to come and sit in a row and listen to someone else speak. That's not what families do. Families do, they come together and they have fun. That's what they're supposed to do. If you say, you know what? I don't have time for all these things. I have to do all these activities. My kids are involved in everything. I'm involved in everything. I just don't have time. I encourage you. We all have a choice to intentionally be a family or to allow the culture to command our lives. We have a choice. We have a choice. Will we follow what God has called us to be or we follow what the world wants us to be? Everyone's complaining about sports on Sundays. Why do we have sports on Sundays? Because followers of Jesus Christ did not put their foot down and say, we will not allow our kids to attend. And so instead of bemoaning the fact, we need to put our foot down and say, we are going to make a choice. We're going to make a choice for the glory of God and for the good of our first family. I'm thankful that the church is a family. I'm thankful to have brothers and sisters in Christ who were called to be my first family, to push me towards maturity, and who were called to love me unconditionally. This past Monday, I was able to speak at the Oakdale Volunteer Fire Department's Volunteer Appreciation Banquet. And I was able to stand up in front of those volunteer firemen, most of whom do not attend a church, and say that I was grateful to be part of a church, that when I go through hard times, I know that they are a family, and they cry with me, and they hug me, and they laugh with me, and they mourn with me. It is an amazing thing to be part of a family. So let us live like a family inside this building and outside. Will you pray with me? Father, thank you for giving us a family, for reaching down to those who are fatherless, motherless, orphans, spiritually and physically, and saying, you are mine. It's an amazing thing to know that we are accepted through the blood of Jesus Christ, that when we turn to you in faith, leaving behind our sin, leaving behind our good works, leaving behind all these religious rituals and say the, stop saying we're going to work our way to you, but fall on the foot of the cross and say, I believe. You grab us up and you put us part of your family where we are loved conditionally, accepted unconditionally, and pushed to be like you. Lord, it's an amazing thing. Thank you for that gift. Lord, may we not spurn that gift. May we not shove it aside, but may we grasp it and live according to it so the world might know that you truly are worth it. Lord, you are good and we love you. Amen.